0: The The
1: Naval Academy Museum presents a history of the Navy in one hundred objects. Beginning with the ships of the line in the sixteen hundreds. The battleship reigned supreme as a tool of naval power around the world for nearly 400 years. Today, we again look at some of the Naval Academy Museum ship models, this time at models of two ships that bracketed the age of the battleship. Museum specialists Grant Walker and Donald Pruell help take us through their histories.
2: The role of the battleships developed way back when, back in the 1600s, they started building what they considered a battleship or a first-rate type ship that carried at least a hundred guns. Uh, it always showed power and might for that nation that they could uh, create something of such enormous power, the illusion that it that you cannot be defeated when you have something this large and this powerful. This slowly developed over the years and it didn't matter which which country it was. I mean, uh, at that time, you had the British, and you had the French, and you had uh, the, the Danish nation uh, which were developing and always fighting against each other. The bigger the ship, the more, and at that time, they also believed in elegance. They wanted the ship to be fancy as far as in, in its decoration. So that also showed a lot
0: also as far as how, how great our Navy is. And we're here this morning to talk about our model of the St. George, This is one of the most famous models, not just in this country, but in the entire world. It's a dockyard model made in England. And by dockyard model, I mean a model that was built at the same time and in the same place as the ship it looks like. This model represents a large three-decker British warship called the St. George that was built in the year 1701. The model itself was finished in the year 1702 or 1703 or 1704. Uh, it is um, a splendid, splendid example of shipbuilding in the 1700s, in the late 1600s, in England, and if the model were simply a hull model, it would still be one of the most important models uh, on the face of the planet, but the fact that it has all the masts and rigging on it makes it unique. This is without question the finest example of period masting and rigging. Um, from about the year 1700 anywhere in the world. Even in England, there are none that are finer and more complete than this one. Um, if you look up at the, at the figurehead, you can see St. George slaying the dragon. Um, it's very, very ornate and uh, with a tremendous amount of Baroque carving in it, which was all the rage uh, at that time. Uh, most of the carving here is gilded in 24 karat gold leaf, we believe. Uh, The rigging is all silk. And one reason it has survived for 300 years is that it's been kept in this custom-made display case for 300 years. You can see that even the glass in it is hand-blown glass. So it really is one of the premier models in the world. We have people from all over the world come to Annapolis just to see this model. It's one of 50 dockyard models that came our way from a benefactor, Colonel Henry H. Rogers, who bequeathed his entire collection uh, to the United States Naval Academy in 1935 at his death. Most maritime museums would kill for one dockyard model, and Colonel Rogers bestowed upon us almost 50, four dozen of these models, making us uh, without doubt the second most important collection of these British dockyard models in the world, followed o- or seconded only to the great National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, London. But this, um, we put this model out here at the very intro to our gallery of ship models, uh, again, as it is such a splendid example of dockyard model making 300 years ago.
2: Uh, later on into the 1800s, once the age of sail had ended, we started getting into steel, manufactured ships and the British were the, probably the first to advance when it came to battleships and the power of a battleship. Noticing this, the, the U.S. started their development of armored ships in 1883 when Congress passed their, their act of the Navy building program by developing the ABCD ships of that time period. But that merged into even more powerful ships, into, their, into battleships, which in turn was the U.S. Navy's way of showing the world uh... that we are an all-powerful nation we decided to have the great white fleet of which sixteen battleships sailed around the world uh... showing our might to everybody and how powerful the u.s. is we had to compete with other nations and show our power in turn that led into obviously the battle of world war one which in the battle of jutland where you had the germans uh, against the um, against the british and that really didn't uh... didn't really prove a whole lot uh... other than the fact that they could have ship-to-ship engagement both neither side really uh... won that battle it was more of a draw between the two but that also led into how ship-to-ship engagement could be very effective in the future since
1: the development of ironclads during the american civil war a furious global production of iron and steel warships had continued nearly unabated around the world sparking several naval arms races that helped lead to World War I. In the wake of the Great War, the remaining dominant naval powers of the world came together in Washington, D.C. in 1921 at the Washington Naval Conference, also known as the Five Power Treaty, to discuss shipbuilding limits. Organized by President Harding, who was concerned about the large-scale ship construction in the U.S., Great Britain, and Japan, the treaty put limits on the number and tonnage of warships of each nation. Although unknown at the time, the conference marked the beginning of the end of the traditional battleship. In 1919, the U.S. Navy had begun construction of six battle cruisers, a ship class that was smaller and faster than the battleship, but that was nevertheless heavily armored and armed. However, The signing of the Five Power Treaty resulted in the United States scrapping four of these new battle cruisers and repurposing, two, the Lexington and the Saratoga into aircraft carriers. These ships became the first two fleet-level operational aircraft carriers, CV-2 and CV-3. CV-1 was the USS Langley, a converted coal and fuel ship, Langley was also the Navy's first ship to be propelled by electric motors. The Washington Naval Conference is considered the first successful disarmament conference in history. Its resulting treaties and follow-on agreements remained in effect until Japan's withdrawal in 1936. Large-scale battleships and cruisers would again be built in the run-up to and during World War II but the conversion of Saratoga and Lexington into carriers had foreshadowed the rise of the aircraft carrier as the mainstay of the U.S. naval fleet, with traditional surface vessels shifting into secondary roles, supporting and protecting the carrier. The destruction of much of the battle fleet of the United States at Pearl Harbor cemented the status of the aircraft carrier as the primary weapon of the naval fleet. However, prior to all of this, In 1938, the United States began construction of its largest battleships ever, the Iowa
2: class. Beside me right here is the Battleship Missouri. It is one of four in the class uh, that was referred to as the Iowa class. She was 883 feet long. She carried nine 16-inch main battery guns uh, that could take a 2,700-pound projectile and, and shove it, Oh good gracious! A good 23 miles, uh, at and, which it only took 50 seconds for it to get there. Uh, uh, also, on this particular ship, they were concerned about during the end of the war of kamikaze attacks, so she was heavily armed with anti-aircraft. She had over 42 20 millimeters, uh, a, a uh, about uh, 30 of the 40 millimeter quads, and also 5 inch uh, dual purpose. She had 20 of those on board. Uh, very heavily armed for, uh, for anti-aircraft. Uh, compared to her counterpart in the Japanese Navy was the Yamato which actually carried uh, 18-inch guns uh, and actually proved to be a actually a very worthy opponent. They had never met during the World War II to actually have battle against each other. Fortunately for the US with all of our uh, attacks and things like that on Japan, their fuel shortage ran short uh, the Yamata was eventually on a suicide mission in 45. Uh, she went to go defend Okinawa along with a cruiser and eight destroyers. And she was intercepted on her way there and uh, sunk and destroyed. Uh, Missouri, fortunately, had a much better uh, career in the, in the Navy. Not only was she at the signing, of the uh unconditional surrender of Japan uh in Tokyo harbor but she went on to work in uh Korea and then later uh, later on in 19 I guess it was 1990 she was also part of uh the war in Iraq these were the last battleships built by the US and uh pretty much uh, they were considered almost obsolete with the invention of uh, aircraft carriers and uh with aviation attacks and then uh from there, uh, we found that uh, the usefulness of a battleship, of, even though it showed the might of the Navy, was no longer a needed vessel for the U.S. Navy. We really didn't have any uh, ship-to-ship engagements during World War II, other than one which was really kind of insignificant. It was an American battleship, I believe it was a South Dakota against a Japanese battleship, of which... Uh, Uh, Nothing really resulted from that one either. But it it didn't matter. It was the fact that you had the power to do something like that. And I think that's what was the significance of the battleship, is the fact that it had the power. It proved that we could stand on our own and and defeat any foe if we had to.
1: With the conclusion of the first Iraq war, the Iowa-class battleships saw their last active service in combat. The collapse of the Soviet Union, negated the need to maintain their combat power, and although at first Congress was reluctant to relinquish the ship's awesome artillery power, today all four battleships are now permanent museum ships. The launch of the Zumwalt-class destroyer was the first new large warship design the United States had fielded in more than two decades, and in many ways has come full circle. For the first time since the Iowa-class, the Zumwalt is equipped with armament designed for long-range artillery support on land. And its design, streamlined and stealthy, harkens back to some of the very first ironclads, looking in many ways like the first ironclad to do battle in the Civil War, the Virginia.